There was a news bubble in the 60s. It was a white news bubble, and black people kind of didn't exist, except in the black press. And that's what civil rights protesters were able to end as part of their effort to dismantle Jim Crow. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. I first came to live in this country, the United States, 15 years ago. And one of the many reasons why I came to love this country was that it seemed to me to embody the possibility of a genuinely multi-ethnic democracy. At its best, this country lived up to that then and it still lives up to it now. For all of the problems that exist on college campuses, I'm amazed by how diverse my students are and by how genuinely they debate challenging ideas, bringing in their identities in the way in which our thought is informed by who we are, but cognizant of being able to relate to each other, to understand each other, to challenge each other's arguments, to think through the world and try and come to a more objective understanding of it. At the same time, I have come to learn more and more over those last 15 years just how far we are from realizing a truly just multi-ethnic society. And there are moments like these weeks in the aftermath of a police killing, the murder of George Floyd, and the protests, where that fact hits particularly close to home. It's easy right now to look at the world and feel as though Americans have very little in common with each other white Americans and black Americans, liberals and conservatives, supporters of Donald Trump and those who oppose him. And there's a truth to that. But I retain the hope that the ambition to make this society work, this great experiment work, is more thorough, more deep going, and more widely shared than may seem evident. And so one small piece of good news that I want to draw attention to in the last week is that a huge majority of Americans, 89% of Americans, believe that the police officer who killed George Floyd should be charged with murder. Now, you might say 195%, 198%, that's my instinct too, but in opinion polling, it's very hard to get 89% to agree on anything. I think if you ask people whether they find puppies cute, you wouldn't get much more agreement than that. I want to make another point, which is that we have somewhat lost COVID-19 out of the view in the last days. Tragically, a virus does not distinguish between whether people are congregating for a righteous cause or to pursue a frivolous activity like going to the beach. So I'm very, very worried about a second wave starting a week or so from now. There are roughly two possibilities. The first is that we find that all of these mass protests don't lead to a lot of new infections. And that would tell us that we got some things wrong. I, I would welcome that. It would mean that we can safely go out much more than we currently do, that we can go and restart some sports, even with spectators, potentially. It would be good news to find that people congregating in the way they have over the last week doesn't spread the virus. But unfortunately, 
I assume that everything we know about the virus points in the other direction and that some of the most vulnerable people in the country, some of the very people whose interests are at stake in protesting police violence at the moment, will then suffer new indignities and new deaths. Well, I'm particularly lucky today to have Omar Wasso join me to uh, help process some of the events of the last weeks. Omar is a professor at Princeton of political science. He started off his career outside academia. Uh, he worked in news and media for a while, and then he actually uh, founded uh, one of the first social networks called blackplanet.com. I know Omar from graduate school, and he just published a very important piece of research showing the empirical impact of violent versus nonviolent protests. It's a searching conversation. It's a conversation that both delves into Martha's history, but then comes around to really think about what the relevance of that history is for understanding how to bring about change and how not to bring about change today. Welcome to the podcast, Omar. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be talking about these important topics. We used to sometimes run into each other in a computer room in the Sieges building of Harvard <laughs> yeah. University and, and chat. I wish we were back in those circumstances now. So you were already back then writing a paper which just was published in the most prestigious political science journal and the American Political Science Review that a lot of people have been covering for obvious reasons in the last week or two. And the broad finding as I take it, is that nonviolent protest is not only superior, as I would put it, from the perspective of political theory on moral grounds and philosophical grounds, but it's actually more effective at bringing about the intended results of a protest. What makes you get to that conclusion? Well, so the core logic of the causal chain in the story is that protests are powerful because they influence media. And Let's begin with the kind of the first order thing, which is almost nobody directly observes a protest. So, hmm. you know, one question would be, do protests matter at all? And of course, as you know, there's a large body of work in political science that says elites dominate political communication, that like we shouldn't expect marginal groups to have any effect in politics. And that that's a pretty consistent finding. And so first, do protests matter? And two, then how do they matter? And what I found was that, yes, protests are having downstream effects on politics, but in particular, they're having the downstream effect on politics through their ability to influence media, right? And that the way any one of us are, almost all of us are observing a protest is not by being there, but by seeing it in the news. And the other kind of striking thing that came out of this research for me was that when the media covers something, we see this almost lockstep movement in public opinion, right? So when there's a big increase in nonviolent civil rights protests, we see front page headlines, like literally a protest today predicts a front page headline tomorrow that mentions civil rights. And that headline about civil rights is tightly correlated with movement in public opinion, where when people are asked, what's the most important problem in America, they respond civil rights as civil rights activity is spiking in the country. Similarly, I observe that when protest activity escalates, in some cases to violence, the front page headline the next day 
there's a statistically significant likelihood that the headline will mention riots and that hmm. as riots get mentioned in the news, public opinion tends to focus a lot on the number one issue in America in the latter part of the 1960s becomes the most important problem is crime and riots. And into that moment come candidates who then begin to campaign on law and order. So the broad idea is that if you have peaceful protest, and especially, I take it from your paper, if that protest is actually met by violence on the part of the state, by police violence yeah. or other forms of state-sponsored violence, then the framing about these protests in mainstream media is going to be uh, positive. It's going to be sympathetic to the cause of those who are protesting. Now, if there is violence from protesters, it might drive a lot of media attention. And that media attention may drive public opinion, but it'll drive it away from their cause. Did I get that right? And if so, what's the empirical evidence for that? How do we how do we know that? Yeah, you got that exactly right. And I think one way to kind of make sense of this is to think about like why are people protesting, right? They are protesting in this moment now to draw attention to a core injustice, say the police killing of George Floyd, right? Hmm. And what a protest in many ways is trying to do is focus our attention on this state violence, particularly against African Americans, this indiscriminate use of force, and that if a protest can focus our collective attention on that, then politics shifts. And the way that happens is the protest draws the media to focus on that injustice, and that injustice then is sort of elevated in the public conversation. And then once it's at that kind of national level, something lots of people are thinking about, then politicians feel compelled to respond. We see shifts in policy. And at the same time, when there is more protester-initiated violence, what we see is that the kind of the focus shifts away from that core injustice, right? And so the media tend to pay attention to a burning building or some other kind of activity that pulls our attention away from the core discrimination or violence that is at the heart of the reason to protest. And to your question, question about, you know, why is it that nonviolent protest met with a violent state response is so powerful. Here's the thing that was for me so remarkable, right, is that we sort of tend to celebrate nonviolence as this very kind of noble act. But what the civil rights leaders figured out was that while nonviolence was a powerful and effective method, it didn't generate as much media attention because it wasn't typically as dramatic as something that had violence, right? So if you have a big protest, as one reporter in the New York Times put it, an unprecedented protest is a dull story. Blood and guts are news, right? And that's in the 1960s. And the kind of logic then that the civil rights leaders figured out was, well, if we organize a protest, you know, we send children into harm's way, which is, of course, a terrible kind of trade-off to have to make, and we pick a location like Birmingham, where there's a police chief who has a hair trigger for violence, and that police chief engages in this kind of spectacle of violence in front of cameras, that then encapsulates the entire injustice story that we're trying to focus the country's attention on. And so you have both a level of violence and drama that brings the media, but also a narrative in a kind of small form, a single image 
of fire hoses against people pressed against a wall, that single image does a lot of work to summarize the entire injustice that the movement is trying to focus our attention on. So that combination of nonviolent protesters and state violence, particularly when the issue is something like a police officer killing a civilian, really sort of tells the story in a way that allows you to link that earlier injustice to the current protest. So one of the things I most love about your work and this paper in particular is how unsentimentally it makes the case for a set of beliefs that I'm very sentimentally attached to. You know, I believe in nonviolent protest for any number of reasons. But, you know, I, I always had this little voice in the back of my mind saying, isn't it a little bit too convenient to think that the virtuous course of action, the pretty course of action, the course of action that we can celebrate in Mahatma Gandhi and in Nelson Mandela and so on, also so happens to be the most effective. And I think your paper in very, very thorough quantitative methodology proves that. I guess the one piece of resistance I feel to that unsentimentality, though, is to say, well, isn't that too much to ask? I mean, to say, look, we're going to go to the place where we're most likely to be harmed. And even as somebody like that local police chief compounds centuries of injustice with even more injustice in that moment, we will turn the other cheek. I mean, that is admirable, but is that too much to ask? You know, should we take that as inspiration or is, or is that lunacy? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think let's think about it in three dimensions, right? So, so the first is, from a moral perspective, just to kind of comment the way you set it up, right? From a moral perspective, should we expect people to turn the other cheek? And clearly, there's a long set of, you know, moral principles that are more in the eye for an eye model or a self-defense is a human right kind of framework that says if somebody punches you, you have every right to punch them back. So I try in the paper to be very clear. I am not saying violence is immoral. In many cases, violence is profoundly moral. The most kind of extreme cases would be something like, you know, do we think Jewish resistance, violent resistance to the Holocaust is immoral? No. I think violence can be a perfectly legitimate means of fighting against oppression. So I think that's one thing that I probably need to emphasize more because I think people take the arc of the paper to if they haven't kind of gone through every, you know, it's a long paper, so it's hard to kind of for that to come through. But I try not to make a moral claim about the illegitimacy of violence, because I think a lot of the more militant black leaders in the 1960s, Malcolm X, most prominently, made a very strong case, right? He says, I don't call it self-defense, I call it intelligence, right? If somebody's attacking you and you fight back. So that's kind of one thing to just kind of bracket. I think there's a second thing, which is really important what you're saying about is it too much to ask, which is that it is in some ways unreasonable to ask this of anybody. And one encouraging thing is it's not the only way to create drama. So groups like ACT UP were able to do things like put a giant condom over Jesse Helms's house, right? This was a group fighting for recognition and research on HIV AIDS. Jesse Helms was a senator who was uh, actively blocking efforts to do research and, you know, address things like condom usage as a way to reduce transmission of AIDS. And so they did a spectacular kind of funny event, a stunt. They intentionally invited media and had it so that it would be covered around the country. And that is a very different kind of spectacle. And those are not easy things to pull off. And it's hard to kind of keep coming up with events like that or media friendly conflict. But it doesn't always have to be putting yourself 
in the line of fire, being an object of state violence, though that was a particularly powerful mechanism in the 1960s. And then third, there's, for me, a kind of puzzle, which is that there's a seed of that tactic's own demise. It is so unreasonable to expect people to subject themselves to this kind of subjugation for the media so that you could move public opinion, that even when it works, part of what's hard is the audience is not just white people in America, the audience is also other black people who are angered and enraged and moved to more militant kinds of commitments that say this is not an acceptable equilibrium where we watch our kinfolk get brutalized on TV. And so I think some of the success of the nonviolent protest movement laid the groundwork because people just got too tired of the abuse and the witnessing of the abuse. And that helped encourage a kind of more militant, you know, more radical faction of the civil rights movement that was much less committed to nonviolence, was entirely supportive of using methods of self-defense that might include violence. And so I think it's an almost unsustainable equilibrium to have this put yourself in harm's way again and again, because it's just too much of almost anybody to, to keep up and it encourages others to want to fight back. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought of that point, actually. So I suppose there's these sort of three elements, right? So one is it may be possible to avoid having to go to those extremes of virtue by uh, finding forms of nonviolent protest which are effective without putting yourself in harm's way. The second point which I want to come back to is this question about the context. Clearly, in some contexts, violent resistance to repression is legitimate. And I suppose the degree to which it's legitimate depends on two things. One is the extent to which we live in a democratic society in which all citizens have some real chance of pursuing their interests and gaining justice through the democratic process. Is, is the democratic process at all, or do we live in an authoritarian state? So I think those are in many ways at the core of some of the debate on social media and so on today. So I want to come back to that. But I found that third point you made very interesting, but in an odd way, very successful nonviolent movements may still seed their own destruction because so many people will be horrified by the impact. Now, of course, it may also be true the other way around, which is to say that violent protests tend to have terrible impacts, not just on some of the people who may be harmed by the violent protests, but on the communities in, in which they occur. And before we go really to the present moment and sort of round off this discussion of the 1960s, I want to understand what do we know about the impact that violent protests within neighborhoods have had just on those neighborhoods? I understand that some of the basic empirical strategy uh, you use in order to predict how people voted also tells us a little bit about what happened to those neighborhoods, which is that if it rained in the hours and days after the assassination of Martin Luther King, then it's much less likely for violent protests to occur in those towns. And my understanding, if I remember this right, is both that places in which it rained and there were no protests were much more likely to vote for Hubert Humphrey in the election six months later. But they also were much less likely to see, you know, economic decline in those neighborhoods in the decades that followed. Yeah, that's right. So there's a part of how I try to get at a causal effect of violent protest on politics is to use rainfall in April of 1968 as a kind of natural experiment that approximates random assignment of uh, protest activity, right? We can't actually randomly assign protests or violent protests. And so I'm trying to look at what maybe is predictive of protest activity, but unrelated to voting in November. 
And this idea of using rainfall builds on some work by two economists, Margot and Collins, who found that if they looked at rainfall in April, so let me clarify why April, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated April 4th. And there are 137 protests that escalate to very high levels of violence in the week that follows, right? There's just an, an outpouring of rage and anger about King's assassination. And in the wake of that, there are these 137 protests around the country. And Margot and Collins say, well, we know rainfall affects all sorts of outdoor gatherings. They find rainfall predicts these violent protests. And to be clear, they're mostly called riots because I'm contrasting protests of nonviolent and a violent type. I just talk about violent and nonviolent protests, but commonly they're called urban riots. And so in the wake of the wave of violent protests following King's assassination, we can potentially think of rainfall as assigning some places, you know, if there's more rainfall, there'll be less likelihood of a violent protest. If there's less rainfall, there's more likelihood of a violent protest. And so we can use rainfall to predict that protest activity. And through that process of rainfall influencing protest activity, we can see, is there any effect on voting? But what Margot and Collins did that you were alluding to, which for me was influential, was they said, well, if we look 20 years down the line, do the housing markets look more depressed in places that were the ones that had the violent protests, but as proxied for, as measured in rainfall? And what they find is the places that had less rainfall, that had more protest activity, have more depressed housing markets 20 years later. Similarly, they look at the jobs markets and they find employment markets are depressed 20 years later, right? And, you know, how would that be? Well, in some cases, in a place like D.C. or some of the other cities that had very big violent protests, events following King's assassination, a bunch of buildings go up in flames. And that, that affects not only the residents making the actual infrastructure of a black community less comfortable, less amenable, but there are whites who already feel a high degree of threat from blacks. You throw in a large violent protest and there's this exodus of whites. And so there's just kind of this cascade of things that followed the violent protests in that period that show up 20 years later in housing and employment markets. So in a material way, these protest activities are having really long-term consequences for black communities. I was interested being a political scientist and are there political consequences, not 20 years later, but in the same year, right? 1968 happens to be an election year. And so I look at, did rainfall in April predict voting in November? And so what I find is that rainfall in April does predict voting in November. And what I do find is there's a more conservative shift. If your county was proximate to more violent protest activity, it votes more conservatively. If, just to make it really clear, if your county wasn't exposed to more violent protest activity, we don't see that shift. So there's about a six to eight point shift for counties that were proximate to this violent protest activity. And we might worry that, like, that's being driven by something like, I don't know, geography, right? Rainfall is correlated with geography and rainfall is correlated, uh, sorry, geography is correlated with voting behavior. So I, I also, as just a, a, an additional test, I say, well, we shouldn't expect rainfall before King is assassinated to influence voting in November. And so I look in the pre-period, and in fact, rainfall before King is assassinated has no predictive power on voting in November. Rainfall in the latter half of April has no predictive power on voting in November. 95% of the protests occur in the week following King's assassination, and all of the predictive power is really in that week. In other words, where we shouldn't expect an effect, there is no effect, right? It's not just geography. It's not just some spurious correlation is what these results suggest. 
it's only where we really have a strong protest effect that week following King's assassination that rainfall almost certainly through the channel of violent protest activity is causing a rightward shift, a more conservative shift in the voting electorate. Yeah, and I promise to my listeners that if you have a smart objection to this paper, but you haven't yet read this paper, more likely than not, Omar has specifically addressed your smart objection by, <laughs> by, by finding other data and finding a way of taking that objection seriously and, and addressing that. I mean, what I find so fascinating about that paper by these two economists is that it gives sort of empirical grounding to a lot of the things that we've heard in the past weeks. When the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, talks about the hurt to Atlanta that may result if protests turn violent. When you hear the very moving words of Terence Floyd, the brother of George Floyd, about him not wanting destruction in his own community and all of the consequences that that would entail in the name of his brother, they are drawing on the lived experience of the impacts of violent protests that these economists sort of document in a more social science and statistical way. Now, a lot of people have been using your paper in the last days in, in one way or another to draw inferences about this moment. And, you know, look, I think there's an obvious way in which your paper that you've worked on for over 10 years happened to be published at a moment when it has obvious things to say about today. But I'm also aware of the fact that probably some of the consequences or implications that people try to draw out are more simple-minded than you perhaps had in mind. How do you think your view of the tragic events of the last weeks is informed by the research you've been doing for the last decade? It's a very perceptive point. I mean, let me just step back and say, you know, I feel like I've been struck by lightning. Like the paper that I've been working on for, you know, it's become a joke among friends and family that this thing is just, you know, it's, it's right around the corner. It's going to get published. It finally got published. And then out of nowhere, it becomes exceedingly relevant to current events. And you sort of, as a academic, hope your work is read by anybody, right? I've read that something like a third of social science papers never get cited at all. And so this is sort of the opposite extreme of just suddenly finding that something I had been sitting with for so long is of uh, interest and relevance to so many people. And I I'm both gratified by that and also it's a source of some sadness that something that is a half century old is still so pressing and urgent and that these kinds of injustices still kind of echo today. So that's just kind of the lived experience for me, which has been a little bit head spinning. And then more generally, I've been very struck by something that I still don't fully have my arms around, but their protests, they symbolize a lot. And I'm still struggling to kind of pin down what are we talking about sometimes when we're actually talking about protests. And I think there are kind of a couple of ways this has played out in the larger public discourse. So one of the ways that King even talks about in Letter from a Birmingham Jail is there's kind of one class of response, one way the paper has been taken up, which is to say, oh, you're not protesting the right way. And King chastises the people who, he's writing, obviously, from, you know, Birmingham jail, he takes issue with people saying, you keep telling us you're concerned about how we're not protesting the right way. You do not exhibit a similar level of concern for the underlying injustice we are protesting, right? And so my sort of empirical paper that says, oh, you know, nonviolence is more effective, violence might be less effective, is, I think, in some cases mobilized by voices who want to say something critical of the protests, understand that George Floyd was killed while we heard him cry for his mother. The taking of his life is so great that you, you can't criticize 
people's anger about that. So there's a kind of rhetorical maneuver, which is to shift the conversation to, oh, it's the wrong tactics. And that's certainly not my project to say, I want to tell people what are appropriate ways to express their mourning or their grief or their anger. But I do see some of the ways in which the paper has been taken up, that it feels like going back to King's insight, there's a desire not to engage with the kind of the core injustice at play. And so I've tried, as more attention has come to the paper, to just kind of keep coming back to why are we protesting? Like, what is this about? There is, at its core, a man who was murdered by a police officer, and that that's part of a long history, and that I have to sometimes take off my social science hat a little and just kind of sit with what does that feel like? How might it feel like for others? Why is that the thing that is so powerful and so mobilizing? And then there, there are other things, but let me pause there and just say that I, I kind of am interested in how protest as a symbol are operating in some ways independent of what we actually see on the ground. And that that's something I'm still trying to make sense of. And I didn't anticipate as I was working in the in those computer labs trying to put the paper together. Hmm. Yeah. I felt the pull of both of these sides in the last days, which is to say that I obviously am very concerned with the underlying injustices and I'm an immigrant to this country, and I love this country in many ways, and I'm proud to have become a U.S. citizen. And in many ways, I still do think that the United States models being a multi-ethnic democracy better than Germany, where I grew up, for example. But then at the same time, the injustices here are often deeper and more profound. And so I'm somebody who's come to love this country but also I'm learning to see it for what it is. And I feel like the past months have been sort of a doubly painful process in that, both in America's seeming inability to use its theoretical state capacity to actually deal with this pandemic as effectively as, say, Germany, where I grew up. And then obviously with the killing of George Floyd and the eruption of a very uh, understandable anger about this, a reminder of just how far we haven't come on police violence, on systemic racism, and so on. You know, at the same time, I do look slightly in despair at some of the people who are my friends or my acquaintances who often aren't living in those neighborhoods that are going to be harmed and destroyed for 20 or 30 years, as that economic research indicates, you know, sitting on Twitter and saying, we're not going to criticize any form of violence. And perhaps that's good. Perhaps as the Attorney General of Massachusetts said, Sometimes you need some violence that's a little bit like fire regenerating a forest. And so I guess I'm torn in how to think about your paper in, in those same ways, which is what I do think it's relevant to today. But I'm very conscious of not wanting to be glib about the ways in which it is relevant. So perhaps one way of dealing with that is to sort of illuminate and ask some critical questions about the extent to which just the empirical prediction that you don't make, but that is sort of in some ways implicit in your finding still holds, right? Which is to say, for example, do you think that some of the media effects you're talking about are still true today? So when you go back to the 1960s, you're dealing with a media on the one hand that I think on the whole would have been a lot less sympathetic to the cause of African-Americans. But on the other hand, it was a sort of very cohesive media, which is to say that it wasn't especially partisan. It had the sense of trying to speak for the mainstream and so you might think that it was very sensitive to different framings, depending on what exactly the facts on the ground are. 
you know, today you might think, actually, we live in a media sphere in which, thankfully, I think, there's a much, much broader space of people who passionately care about remedying systemic racism, about giving truly equal opportunities to African Americans, about ending police violence. But on the other hand, you know, that media sphere is so fragmented. But on the one side, you have people who are probably going to be sympathetic to the protests no matter what. And on the other hand, you have people who are probably going to be unsympathetic to the protests no matter what. So perhaps some of that way in which the actual facts on the ground might shape media reporting and then might shape public opinion just doesn't hold as much as it would have done in the 1960s. Yeah, all fair points. Let me speak a little bit to the history of media in that era, because media is such an important kind of character in the story. I was surprised by a couple of things. So one is, you know, I understood that there would be conservative newspapers in the South, but was still surprised by the degree to which there was a significant pro-segregation newspaper. You know, the media of the South was largely not just, you know, polarized or conservative. It was pro-segregation. It was pro-Jim Crow. The non-Southern media was indifferent to black concerns, right? So it was essentially tolerant of Jim Crow. And the only media that paid attention to black interests was the black press. And so there was a kind of different sort of polarization, which was a literal segregation of media. And at the heart of the logic of that, you know, going back to our earlier discussion of these nonviolent protest events that could draw media attention was an effort to puncture the indifference and hostility of national media to black interests. And so I think there's one way in which the present is clearly very different. There's more media. You're absolutely right. It's more fragmented. But the kind of, um, you know, the term that people often use, a news bubble, there was a news bubble in the 60s. It was a white news bubble and black people kind of didn't exist except in the black press. And that's what civil rights protesters were able to end as part of their effort to dismantle Jim Crow. And so... I think it's a different issue now, but it's not a totally new issue. On the issue of fragmentation, I think that is is one of these things that does suggest uh, some real change. You know, there were three TV news networks. I think one other thing I didn't fully appreciate is that TV, you know, goes between 1950 and 1960 from roughly 9% penetration in America to 90% penetration. So part of what makes the civil rights movement possible is that we have three national news networks that are just coming into existence and they don't quite know what to do with their TV news programs. And along comes these very strategic civil rights activists, one of whom, Andrew Young, had the good fortune of being one of the few people in America to work on a TV news program. And he's a close advisor to King and they are very thoughtful about how do you do, how do you speak in sound bites? How do we organize our protests so that they're in the morning and can be uh, shipped to New York uh, for broadcast in the evening? I mean, they're really thinking about how is the media going to take this story national. And that in turn becomes, to use a kind of slightly odd old uh, internet term or technology term, that civil rights protests become the killer app of TV news. We see TV news start to find the logic of its purpose in covering civil rights. And so there's this symbiosis between the civil rights protest and the emergence of this very powerful new TV medium. And in events like the March on Washington, even things like satellite television, which take it to 
international audiences. So media is very powerful, but it is, to your point, it's a few networks. And as we come to the current moment where it's many, many channels, many, many possible ways to consume these stories, everybody having their own unique social media feed, it's much less clear, is there a single narrative that emerges? And then one last thing I would say, which I think does speak to a commonality between then and now, is that even as the media is more sophisticated, and I think it's right that, that it is, and the media is a really key actor here, there are some kind of core narratives that are kind of deep in our culture, right? So protests are in one story, the Boston Tea Party, a fight for rights, a redress of grievances, a kind of a legitimate way of expressing your frustrations with some aspect of society, or they are a kind of criminal riot. And not just a riot, but when you mix race and this narrative about protest, you're tapping into essentially hundreds of years of racist mythology in America about the kind of pathological qualities of black people. And so the media are drawing on these two scripts, and in some cases they're just sort of falling into the right script, but in other cases they fall very easily into the crime and riot script. And I do see more sophistication in how the media is covering these stories now. I was listening to a radio program yesterday where a police chief was being interviewed and grilled about why are police-driven SUVs plowing into crowds? Why do we have evidence of somebody hitting a peaceful protester with a baton without provocation? And in another era, the interviewer would have been deferential to the police-centric view of things. And here the reporter was really grilling this police chief, taking a more of a rights frame, right? So I do think we see more sophistication, but at the same time, there's a kind of powerful logic to something like, if there's a burning building, I used to work in local news. TV loves good visuals. And good visuals are just like they, you know, in the language of the, the profession, like that makes for good television. So even if there's no particularly like substantive reason to kind of keep coming back to a burning building, it's the sort of thing that will occupy a lot of real estate in television because it's a powerful image. And things like that in a violent protest really pull the focus of the camera away from our concern about, well, wait, why are people out here? Is it about George Floyd being killed? Or is it some kind of other set of motives that have nothing to do with justice? And that pulling the focus away from the core concern of justice is, I still think, a recurring pattern in how media cover nonviolent and violent protests. That seems very plausible to me for a number of reasons. I mean, one is that, you know, the number of people who just watch Fox News or who just watch MSNBC is much smaller than we often like to think. A lot of people right. uh, still watch news sources that have at least some aspiration to cover both sides of a political spectrum fairly, even though that's obviously very difficult to do at this moment and it's not quite clear what it means. And there's also a lot of people who just are exposed to news sources from both sides, which may each be cheerleaders for their own side, but they do get a mix of that. And I'm quite skeptical, actually, about the ability of political elites to deeply reform the views of people. I think in some ways populism is, among many other things, caused by the fact that the views of the elite often were not that close to the views of the people they claim to represent, and eventually people were not willing to be led by them. I, I also see it in a very different context. So I've been thinking a lot about the fact that in Germany, where you know for 30 or 35 years, every elite institution 
emphasizes the importance of memorializing the Holocaust and of thinking of the Third Reich as sort of the original sin of modern Germany and as the end of Nazi rule being a liberation for Germany in the famous words of Richard von Weizsäcker, one post-war German president. And yet, in a recent poll, 60% of Germans say, I don't want to talk about the Holocaust anymore. Leave me alone. Let's finish talking about that. So, you know, I think in the same way today, I think that there is a lot of people who are likely to be swayed by seeing different framings on different sides or simply by watching some of those pictures. And that is likely to influence people more than my objection perhaps implied. So I think you've convinced me on that. Um, let me Let me try another objection, which... I want to emphasize is very, very important, but obviously not the most important uh, thing in this context. And that's the upcoming presidential election, which is very important because I think anybody who cares about progress on these issues in the United States has to hope that Donald Trump is kicked out of office in November. But at the same time, there's obviously something slightly gross about thinking about the things that are very important going on at the moment in their own right as just a prelude to the election. But it's a question that is hard not to ask. Well, I think there's two potential differences here, and I'd love to take your temperature on both of those. The first is that when we're looking at the 1968 election, which according to your simulations may have actually been won by Hubert Humphrey if there hadn't been violent reactions to MLK's assassination. Well, Hubert Humphrey was the incumbent, and Donald Trump obviously is the incumbent now. So it's not the case that the Republican can run on an order ticket quite as easily because the disorder happened under his watch and obviously, in my opinion, in significant part as a result of his continual efforts to inflame the situation. The other thing is that it's sort of hard for us to look back at Richard Nixon and sort of squint very hard and see compared to today a moderate figure. But in many ways, Richard Nixon was trying to present himself in that election, despite the infamous law and order ad, despite the Southern strategy, as a kind of middle option between George Wallace and Hubert Humphrey. Whereas you could argue that Donald Trump stands more directly in the line of descent of George Wallace than of Richard Nixon. So that rather than sort of speaking for a quote-unquote mainstream law and order tradition, uh, he really speaks for a deeply sectional inflammatory tradition. And so that therefore he may not be able to capitalize on the genuine desire for calm or the fear of chaos in quite the same way that Richard Nixon did in 68. So I guess my question is, how worried should those of us who desperately want Donald Trump to lose be about the violence we've seen in the last weeks? Yeah, it's it's a really important question. So I would say a couple of things that maybe don't all tie together, but but do speak to your question. So I think, I mean, the first order is, and I get some pushback on this, right? That my focus on the Democrats versus Republicans is not to say that either party is somehow right and wrong, but rather that I'm trying to take the perspective of what are the protesters? What are the interests of the protesters? What do they want? And if they want more of a advancing of rights for African-Americans, a more egalitarian society, after the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the Democratic Party is the party of black interests. And, and we've seen that in voting where you know, upwards of 80 plus percent, in some cases, 90 percent of African-Americans are voting for the Democratic Party. So sometimes people take this kind of focus on parties to be like a horse race story. And I don't think that's, that's the right way to look at it. You know, there are two broad coalitions in America. One is much more interested in kind of maintaining a status quo, and one is much more focused on change for racial equality. Neither is optimal in terms of like their ability to execute on you know advancing racial equality. But it's the point is not that I'm somehow a part 
citizen who cares about Democrats. I care about black interests and black interests in the 1960s. Full stop. The Democratic Party plants both feet with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act on the side of black interests. So I think it's reasonable to say, well, you know, there are a bunch of issues at play with Trump, among them international treaties, climate change, uh, the pandemic, the economy. It's a pretty full deck. And I think to come to another of your points, I think you're right. He's not obviously a sane, calm, reassuring presence. Even people who are enthusiastic about him often say they wish he wouldn't tweet as much. They wish he wasn't such a rough character. But I also think it's important to keep in mind sort of what the kind of core promise of law and order is and what the core promise of a lot of Trump's rhetoric has been since the beginning, which is I am going to use, uh, you know, the full force of the state to keep these threatening, you know, non-Christian, non-whites at bay, right? So a Muslim ban is fundamentally about these threatening Muslims, right? The wall is about these threatening Mexicans and Latin Americans. And so in a moment like this, where threatening African-Americans are kind of at the heart of the American story in terms of like, again, the kind of racist mythology, it really plays to his core promise about a particular kind of order. It's not the you're going to wake up every day and not have to think about politics. It's that it's a terrifying world and I'm the one who stands between you and the other side of the wall. And if people buy that racist mythology or in smaller ways, right? I talked to a reporter who said there are these neighborhood groups organizing in Minneapolis to, in one case, these are middle-class folks in a predominantly liberal neighborhood who are organizing to create a, you know, the men in that neighborhood are there with guns to check who's coming in and out of the neighborhood. They're trying to protect their community. And that doesn't tell us how people will vote, but it does suggest people are concerned about safety. And so I think on the one hand, we have a bunch of evidence, historical and contemporary, that suggests these things are live today. People care about threat and they care about threat from non-white, non-Christian folks a lot. Right. And I don't think we can overestimate the degree to which that is like a core driver of American politics. And at the same time, I think you're exactly right that there are a lot of reasons to think it's going to be hard to tease out what's pandemic and what's the, you know, 20% unemployment and what's frustration with his mismanagement and, you know, kind of being, as one Republican called him, a chaos agent, the, the, the kind of the collective exhaustion and anger about his mismanagement makes it harder for him to make the law and order claim to a lot of people. But I think it depends on where you pin that sense of threat. And if the pandemic really scares you, he's clearly not your guy. If black unrest really scares you, then he probably is. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the sort of one phrase that sums this up most succinctly and in some ways appropriately, most vulgarly, is he's an asshole, but he's our asshole. I think that's a feeling that a lot of people in the country, unfortunately, have. Now, I think we shouldn't underestimate the extent to which people do feel he's an asshole. I mean, most Americans would not want Donald Trump to raise their kids. And, and actually, you know, one of the polls that I thought was interesting that have been taken in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd is approval ratings for Trump on different issues. And not only is he underwater on most issues, but he's actually most underwater on race relations. So I think this idea that somehow him race-baiting is an unalloyed boon to him is overly simplistic. Agreed. 
Agreed. And, and let me let me just say one other really important point on the polling data that speaks to how today is different from the past. I was fairly pessimistic a few minutes ago, but this is something for me that's encouraging. We see there's much greater concern about racial equality in this country now versus even just 10 years ago. That trend has particularly pronounced among white liberals. We do see the media behaving in a more, you know, to use your word from before, a more sophisticated way. They're not just telling stories about uh, black crime as a kind of uh, uncomplicated uh, narrative in a way that might have been more common in the 60s. And so I think that level of understanding about this history and how that shapes our sense of this moment, and in particular, this shift in public opinion about more people being concerned about racial equality really does bode well for the long term that these issues may kind of come to the center of our politics. It's not clear yet whether that's a winning coalition at the level of the Electoral College. It clearly was a majority of the vote in 2016. Well, and I agree with you. And, and what I was going to say is that on the other end of this, I do think that those people who either are generally concerned about order in their communities or those people who, you know, on the one hand, do have this feeling of he is an asshole and I am concerned about him. But on the other hand, do also strongly have this feeling of he is, quote unquote, our asshole, which is to say, in the end, he stands up for people like me rather than people like those people over there. I think that the more disorder there is and the more violence there is, the more they are going to feel the second half of that sentence. Right, the less it's going to matter to them this read that, well, he's an asshole and this is all too much. And, you know, these four years have been so exhausting and I just want somebody who's going to make it all stop. And the more they might start to feel these four years have been exhausting and Donald Trump is an asshole and I know that he's very, very flawed, but you know what? I really need somebody who's on my side. And that is my fear that the more we see that, the more that the worst angels of deeply flawed people's natures are going to come through. I want to get back, you know, as we slowly, leisurely start to wind up this conversation to one question that we bracketed earlier, because I think that it does actually speak to the core moral conversation that people are having at this point. You know, there's a story of America in which it's a deeply flawed country that has always been shaped by slavery and then ongoing systemic racism, but in which we've made progress and in which that progress demonstrate the fact that you can, in fact, push for legitimate interests even against huge resistance. That the last 50 years, the last 60 years since the beginning of the civil rights movement have been one of mixed but tremendous progress or imperfect but tremendous progress. On the other hand, I think there's a view that says, look, it's 2020 and what are we dealing with you know, a black man being murdered by a white cop. It's 2020 and systemic racism still shapes America in so many different ways. And I think that that's often in the background of discussions about the legitimacy of violence, for example. Because if you think that for all of America's flaws, it is a democratic society in which we are making progress, then violence looks illegitimate. If you look at America, the most extreme case, more akin to the Third Reich, more akin to other contexts in which a minority group just wasn't able to make progress through the democratic process, then violence looks a lot more legitimate. Now, you know, personally, I fall on the first side of that. I understand the deep impatience and the deep frustration, but I do think that when you look at the entirety of the situation, there has been tremendous progress and democratic processes can work. 
But I would love to know which side of that you fall on and whether that's the right way of framing it. Yeah, let me try to make the case of some of my... I mean, nobody's really said this to me point blank, but there's a, a line of argument on Twitter, a little bit among friends on Facebook, that says to think nonviolence worked is to be naive, that violence is the only thing that has worked, that, you know, I mean, you can even think about the founding of this country is a violent revolution, right? And that, to quote Frederick Douglass, right, power concedes nothing without a struggle, and that struggle, um, to kind of extend it a little, almost always involves a kind of brutal fight, right? And so the people who want to sing homilies to nonviolence are missing the realpolitik of the world. And that is a, a position I'm, you know, I'm trying to listen to, but I think at least in some very clear ways is just obviously wrong, right? So let's begin with kind of the first part of it, which is that we observe again and again nonviolent campaigns being very effective, right? And leave my work out of it, right? You can look at um, Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stevens, who have a book, The Logic of Nonviolence, where they looked cross-nationally at over 300 campaigns, some of which were nonviolent, some of which were violent. And the nonviolent ones were about twice as effective as the violent ones. It was about 50% to 25%. And they point to things like, echoing what you just said, a kind of, even in non-democratic context, an ability for nonviolent protesters to maintain legitimacy, to build a coalition of allies, sometimes in the opposition, because the legitimacy they had as nonviolent actors gave them standing. They were able to build coalitions with international actors who allied with them because, again, there was a kind of legitimacy that came with their standing. There's another problem, which is that violence from a subordinate group, right? If you're African-Americans and you're approximately 10% of the population in 1960, about 13% of the population now, if you engage in more organized violent resistance, but again, let's think cross-nationally, you are some group, you're Nelson Mandela, right? Like somebody we herald as a paragon of nonviolent resistance, but like when was he arrested? He was arrested engaging in what was to be a violent insurrection, right? And so, the, you know, I think we can think about violence under something like apartheid as legitimate. There aren't newspapers there to promote your story. You don't have legitimate rights, like extra legal action is legitimate. And in that context, there's an additional burden of violence, which is it legitimizes the state to engage in extreme repression. And I don't mean legitimizes like in a moral sense, but it's like in a kind of tit for tat world of politics, when the protesters engage in violence in the world of some kind of public opinion legitimacy, that means a violent response becomes acceptable is what we seem to see and that there's not a price to pay. The state doesn't pay a price for meeting violence with violence. It provides a kind of excuse. Yeah, that's right. It, it gives the state an excuse. And of course, if you're wildly outnumbered and outgunned, then picking a fight with a much larger army is not likely to be a winning strategy. It might be a moral strategy. It might be entirely the most noble and brave thing to go down fighting, right? So this is, again, why I am not a critic of violence as a means of resistance, but it may not be the thing that gets you what you ultimately hope for. And it's into that kind of situation where the practical advantage of nonviolence gives you a kind of additional ability to resist state repression. So to be clear, 
King is being monitored by the FBI. There are active efforts to try to sow discontent within the nonviolent civil rights movement. It is not that the federal government isn't engaging in active repression efforts against this nonviolent civil disobedience movement, but you're kind of throwing in additional literally combustible elements when the subordinate group, when that marginal group engages in violence, and some of those combustible elements are state repression that is literally shooting at killing off of black activists who were aligned with the Black Panthers, aligned with the Black Power movement. And that I'm not in any way endorsing or suggesting that's an acceptable use of power. It's a totally extra legal, totally illegitimate use of power. But the price the state pays for engaging in that illegal repression is much lower when it's seen as a kind of eye for an eye, right? So that's the other cost of engaging in that kind of moral framework. And then maybe just as a final kind of thought, like for me, the generalizable thing here beyond black folk and beyond the kind of long run history of slavery in America is all over the world, you have statistical minorities, marginal groups, people in positions that are kind of far removed from power, who are trying to understand how do we advance our interests, right? So this is not just a black issue. This is all over the world, to your point around both multi-ethnic democracies, more homogenous democracies, but maybe there's a subordinate group that's, you know, LGBTQ or something. How do they advance? their interests. And I think it's really important to underline that while violence can be legitimate and in some cases, you know, does produce success, we see a cross-national, in fine-grained data that I was looking at within the U.S., evidence that nonviolence can be extremely effective. And the kind of dismissive attitude I see towards the power, the logic, the genius, the strategic value, and the kind of moral high ground that nonviolence commands, that the people ignoring that are doing so, not just at the peril of current events, but of insurgencies around the world that are also wrestling with those kinds of questions. Oba, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yasha, thank you for having me. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.